make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? The revolution starts now. Starts We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Turn those machines back on! You are about to enter the Peter Schiff Show. Show me the money! If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. The Peter Schiff Show is on. Call in now. 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money, your stories, your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. All right, all right, everybody. How are you doing this morning? It's the Ben Mullen Free Domain Radio sitting in the still warm Peter Schiff chair from last week. We are going to have a very, very interesting show today. We have somebody from a super PAC who's going to talk about some issues in the Ron Paul campaign. Can you imagine that Republicans are occasionally unfriendly to Ron Paul? I can't imagine since he embodies so many of the values that they claim to possess, but we're going to have a nice chat about that. We have the great Veronique de Rougy coming in. She's going to talk about what austerity means and what a ridiculous term it is uh, talking about the um, the issues over in Greece, which, you know, are not uh, too distant. You know how America imports everything from Europe sooner or later. Uh, people, ideas, uh, to some degree, aren't soon economic cata- catastrophic economic excitement. And uh, Larry Saltzman will be here. Uh, he is going to be, uh, he's just filed a suit against the state of Virginia on behalf of doctors who are being prevented from being practice, uh, from practicing. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, one thing I love about being in the... Um, and the freedom movement is that you just meet the smartest and most engaging of people. We've got some great guests coming up. So really, if there's a theme for today's show, and I like to think that occasionally there is, we're really talking about property, property rights and property. This is something that's really, really important to understand philosophically. And what I mean by philosophically is accurately, factually. And so you may have heard, you know, there's a bunch of... Um, mind-twisting brain-benders that are floating around uh, late-night dorm room bull sessions that go sort of something like this. Okay, so this is Guy. See, and this guy's name is Bob. And Bob's wife, yay, she is deathly sick, almost to the point of shuffling off her mortal coil. And she needs a pill to make her all better, to make her boo-boos all gone. And that pill doth cost $10,000. And um, so Bob's wife is sick. She needs a pill for $10,000. Bob... You don't have $10,000. He doesn't have it. And so is Bob then justified in, and he goes to the pharmacist and who's got the pill and says, oh, please, please, my wife, she's dying. Here's a picture. Oh, that's how sad. Is he then allowed or justified? Is there any kind of moral justification for him to break into the pharmacist's pharmacy at night under the stealthy cover of darkness to take the pill to give it to his wife and thus save her life? And this is a nasty little question to get, because it's a completely false dichotomy. We'll talk about that in a sec. But most importantly, it's a trap. It's a trap. Stand back, roll, duck, and cover. (laughs) Hide under the uh, desk and kiss your butt goodbye, as they used to say in the 50s warnings about nuclear war. But it's a ridiculous question. Because the way it's supposed to work is if you say that, yes, he is justified in going and stealing the pill to save his wife from her earthly demise, then clearly you're in favor of the welfare state. In other words, violation of property rights for the sake of, of helping people is valid. And therefore, you are for the, pro- for the welfare state, uh, for the forced redistribution of income, 
uh, under the guns of the government, and um, you know, let's all go sing international and walk under the banner of Karl Marx. So that's the one. But if you say, no, he is not, he must not steal the pill, then you're basically saying, oh, so under your system, sick people just die. <laughs> so it's a trap, and it's a ridiculous trap. And the reason it's so ridiculous, of course, is like most moral issues or moral questions, it's, th it's, it's, it's got no time context. It's got no social context. It's got no context of any kind. It's like these people are operating in the depths of interstellar space where I strongly doubt life-saving pills are freely available. So let's say this guy needs $10,000. Let's say he's got no health insurance. Uh, and let's just pretend that this is a free market, right? Because if this, this has to be a free market question. Because it's not a free market question, then uh, he'll just go get, get it from Medicare or Medicaid or he'll just go to an ER and he'll get the pill for free. Well, not for free, but other people will be forced to pay for it. So let's pretend this is a free market situation, in which case, you know, your health insurance would probably be about 5 to 10% the cost of what it is right now, and you'd get much better service. So he didn't buy health insurance. So he saved money from not buying health insurance. So he can take the money that he saved from not buying health insurance and use it as a down payment on the pill, which he can then get in a payment uh, period over time. He'd go to the, you know, the, the guy wants to sell a pill. He, wants, he doesn't have the pill because he wants a pill collection. He wants to sell the pill. So, guy, you know, Bob goes to the pharmacist and says, listen, I'm going to pay you like a hundred bucks uh, a week for, you know, X amount of weeks. Here's some money down. Uh, or why doesn't he just go and borrow the money from a bank? Because people being alive is actually a pretty good investment. So his wife, if his wife dies, she's got no more earning potential. But if she lives, she can go back to work. And so then they'll have a lot of extra money and they'll use that to pay off the pill. Why not? just put it on his credit card. <laughs> I mean, the credit cards are, you know, they send homeless people uh, the platinum cards, I think, at times, so he could just do that. Why doesn't he go to his friends? Why doesn't he go to his parents? Why doesn't he go to, to his extended family? Why doesn't he go to his church? Why doesn't he go to some charity? Why doesn't he go to anywhere, anyone, anytime who is going to help? Because look, either people in society want to help people who've fallen on hard times, or they don't. Now, if they do want to help people who've fallen on hard times, then you don't need the government because people are just going to do it through charity. Charity is like over a $100 billion a year business, I shouldn't say business, uh, enterprise in the United States as it stands. So he can just go and ask for the money. Uh, he can offer to work for free. Hey, Mr. Pharmacist, I don't have a lot of skills. Otherwise, I'd have 10000 bucks sitting around somewhere. But I will come and sweep your floors for the next two years if you give me this pill. And I won't charge you a penny. Well, yeah done. Or he could go negative, right? <laughs> he could go to the dark side, yeah, which can be fine. Uh, he can go in, to the pharmacist and say, look, Mr. Pharmacist, uh, you are withholding any reasonable accommodation I'm trying to get for this to get this pill for my wife. So I'm going to call up the local media and say, you know, heartless rat fink <laughs> pharmacist is, is causing my wife to die by not selling, renting, or otherwise give, getting me the pill no matter what I say. Uh, he's, uh, he's a bad guy, uh, and what kind of negative publicity is that going to produce for you, Mr. Pharmacist? Massive amounts of negative publicity. Uh, he can go to the pill company and say, do you know that you give your pills to these pharmacists who won't take any reasonable accommodation to get the pill into my wife's body and save her life, blah, blah, blah? How's that going to do, Mr. Pharmacist, to your relationship with the pill company? I mean, you could go on and on. You could go on and on. But the, un the important thing to remember is that you know, in life in general, I think in many ways there's kind of a karmic thing, like you, you get what you give. And if this guy's never helped anyone else, then he probably doesn't really have any friends who want to help him. Or maybe he's borrowed a whole bunch of money in the past and has never paid it back, in which case people are less likely to lend him money now. But all this means is that actions have consequences, that if you want nice things from the world, you give nice things to the world. I mean, I 
rely entirely. I've got no ads. Uh, I give my books away for free. I rely entirely on donations because I have the business sense of a jar of cheese string. And uh, it's fine. It works out really well. The generosity in the world is really great. So if anybody asks you this question, you can go through this stuff. But you can also say, well, would you help the guy? And if the guy says, well, yeah, I would. I said, well, I would too. So, you know, problem solved. And if he says, well, I wouldn't help the guy. It's like, well, then why are you talking about it like it's an ethical issue if you don't even want to help the guy whose wife is dying? So that's one way to approach it. We're going to get a little bit more into property rights theory. It's really, really important to understand this stuff. We want to make sure that what we're defending is moral, true, virtuous, and good. Call in. We'll have time later in the show for callers. I will be back right after the break. You've heard of Karl Marx, right? Well, now, meet his worst nightmare. This is the Peter Schiff Show. All right, we're back and we are talking, really the theme of the show, we are talking about property rights today. Do you remember property rights, those distant, foggy, fading into the rearview mirror rights that were really the essence of human civilization and the violation of which undermines, as surely as dominoes fall down when stacked against each other, undermines our liberties. I mean, all rights, I think, fundamentally come down to property rights. Because the first property that you have is your body, is you. Only you can make your arm move. I mean, stare at my arm and try and make it move. And unless your name is Mr. Epilepsy, you're probably not going to have very much luck. Only I can control my body, only I can control uh, my, my, my words, my language, my actions. And so when we think about property, the first, first, first place to start is with the body. It clarifies so much about property that otherwise gets obscured. I mean, people want to leap into, I copied an MP3. What, you know, is that you know, is intellectual property or patent property or, or whatever? Copyright that stuff is, uh, first of all, so messed up by the state system that well, we can talk about that perhaps another time. But start with the individual. Start with the person. The fundamental question about property rights are things like, do I own my kidneys? Do I own my kidneys? If you have a failing kidney or two, do you have the right to come and take my kidney by force? That's really what property rights are all about. And people like to abstract it, like into currency or money or social transfers, social justice, uh, the welfare state, and so on. But really it comes down to if I have a healthy kidney or two and you have no healthy kidneys, do you get to take my kidney by force? Now, if anyone tells you yes, then you want to back away from that person very slowly, speak softly and gently, don't make any sudden moves and put, say, a catcher's mitt over the area where your kidney is exposed on your skin. That would be my suggestion. Because anyone who says, yes, I can come in with a rusty spoon and take your kidney, should mine fail, uh, is just a psycho and should not be graced with the respect of a debate. Because my kidney is my property. I have watered it, I have grown it, I have nurtured it and taken care of it low these many years, and um, it's mine. Mine! <laughs> now, I can choose to donate it, I can choose whatever, but you know, while I still want it and while I'm still alive, it's mine. So all property really starts with the body. Now, there's the property that we create outside the body, which, or using the body, which is another question. It's a lot easier to steal someone's iPhone than it is to take their kidney. So what is our relationship to that? 
Well, it's not really fundamentally very different. Just because something is inside my skin or outside my skin, if I have created it, if it only exists because of my actions, then it's still mine. There's no fundamental difference between my kidney and a log cabin that I build in the woods. I have transformed the trees into a log cabin. The log cabin has been brought into existence. Property fundamentally is that which is brought into existence, not something which is just grabbed or homesteaded, but things that are brought into existence. So if there's, if I built a log cabin, why is it mine? Because there would have been no log cabin if I didn't build it. Think of a fish in the sea. What use is it to anyone? Well, to the other fishes, maybe food or, or something like that, it has value. It has value to itself because it wants to stay alive and that's all fine and good. But from a sort of human utility standpoint, the fish in the ocean has no value to anyone. So how much are you going to pay me if I say, I will give you the right to own a fish in the ocean? <laughs> what, what are you going to offer me for that? Now, don't everybody bid at once. But what are you going to offer me for that? Well, you're not going to offer me anything because it's inaccessible, has no utility, you can't find it. How much are you going to pay me for a log cabin that I've built if I say, well, it's perfect for you, it's right on the lake, it's just a you know, short distance from the highway, uh, and uh, so on. Only $200,000. And you say, well, that's great. Where is it? You say, well, I'm never going to tell you. I'm never going to tell you where the log cabin is. But, you know, come on, fork over that $200,000. Well, it's inaccessible to you. It can't be used. So the real act of property is to bring something into utility. When you, when you pull the fish out of the lake, it becomes something that someone can use. They can put it in a fish tank and enjoy it. They can set it free. If that's their particular bent, they can fry it up with uh, a white wine sauce and a nice Chianti and some fava beans. So they can do all of that kind of fun stuff with it. But the bringing of property into utility, into the sphere of utility, is what property really is. So people think about homesteading, like you go and I used to actually do this, <laughs> believe it or not, when I was, uh, after high school, I went and worked as a gold pan or prospector up north. And I did a lot of claim staking because that's how you sort of get mineral rights in Canada. You go kilometer square and you hammer these little plaques into the trees and then you get the mineral rights for a certain amount of time. But nobody cared about the, the trees, nobody cared about the plaques, nobody cared about any of that. All that was cared about was the minerals. So it's not that you go and enclose a piece of land that that's important when it comes to property. What matters, let's say you're a farmer and you go and enclose a couple of acres and you put a fence around it or whatever. The only reason you're doing that is so that you can create crops, so that you can bring crops into existence that otherwise would not exist, that otherwise would not exist. And this is why ownership is so essential, because you are bringing things into existence that otherwise would not exist. You only put the fence around a, a farm so that you can plant crops and grow them, so that you know that you will actually be able to harvest what you're planting. Right? You only walk into the, tree, into the forest with an axe, so you can cut down the trees, so you can build a log cabin. So it is the cre property fundamentally is creation and why are parents responsible for their children? Because they brought the child into existence, right? If I remember rightly, the wife gets drunk, the husband uh, gets on his knees and begs and pleads and cries, and then um, the Holy Spirit comes along and inseminates somebody and there you get a baby. If I'm, it's, I'm a little hazy, but, but I think some, something like that. The baby is, the child, the human life is created, is brought into existence. The way that the fish is brought into utility by being caught and put in a boat. The way that crops are brought into existence by homesteading a piece of property. It's the things which exist which otherwise would not exist that is the essence of property. 
And the degree to which we forget that, the degree to which we place need above property, right? That's the old communist slash socialist dictum. From each according to their ability, to each according to their need. Now, that would morally justify somebody being held down, drugged, having their chest cracked open, having a healthy lung removed, and then implanted or donated, so to speak, to somebody who was a chain smoker who's got lung cancer in the lung. Right? The guy who's got lung cancer really needs a lung. And the guy who's been a marathon runner and never touched a cigarette, he's got a healthy lung from each according to their ability, healthy lung, to each according to their need, cancerous lung. But we shrink back from that, right? We shrink, I mean, any, any decent human being is going to shrink back from that, uh, from that equation. You know, if, if I'm an idiot, <laughs> and let, let's assume I'm not for a moment, <laughs> if I'm an idiot, and uh, I, I grab a bunch of fireworks and, and read the instructions which says, do not hold them when you light them. And then I light the fireworks and blow up both of my thumbs. Is it then reasonable for me to go out and jump a stranger and get his thumb or thumbs and have them reattached? Well, no, it's not his fault that I was an idiot. It's my fault that I was an idiot. If I've smoked my whole life, despite my doctor's advice and general common sense, and then I get sick, well, you can ask for charity, of course. But you do not have the right to other people's labor. You do not have the right to other people's labor. That isn't slavery. 100% ownership of other people's labor is slavery. 50%, well, it's taxation slash serfdom. Well, but I repeat myself. There are two sides of the same coin. And in some cases, it doesn't really matter how long you possess somebody else's property. A rapist possesses the body of his victim for not very long, a couple of minutes maybe, but it's still an egregious and unholy crime. And so property is essential. It starts in the body and the effects of the body, whether it's a, the spoken word, whether it's um, a log cabin or a fish that's usable, or whether it's uh, a crime that you've committed. We own the effects of our actions. We own the effects of our actions, for better or for worse. And we can always ask for charity, but we can never pull out a gun, morally or legitimately, and force other people to do our will. Guns can be used, of course. Violence can be used in self-defense, in an extremity of self-defense. Of course, I have no problem with self-defense. I'm not a pacifist in that sense, because that doesn't sustain itself logically. Because if self-defense is wrong, then you have to initiate force against people who are <laughs> doing self-defense because it's a crime, which means you'd have to raise it as a crime to a higher status of immorality than the initiation of force. That's ah, right, it's a bit... Anyway. But the reality is that we own ourselves. We own the effects of our actions. And any debate is going to naturally accept this. Because if I put forward an argument, I am creating the argument. I am putting it out. I am using my mouth, my tongue, my larynx to create and produce an argument. And we all accept that because people respond to me as if it's my argument. We even own the arguments that we create. The violation of property rights is as egregious a violation in the long run as violations of personal body space. We're going to get back and we're going to talk to the great Larry Salzman right after the break. It's going to be a fascinating discussion on just what we're talking about. We will be right back. We now return to the Peter Schiff Show. Call in now. 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. The Peter Schiff Show. All right, everybody, we are back. Let's move from theory to practice. Uh, on the line, we have Larry Saltzman. Uh, Larry, are you there? 
Stefan, I'm here. Thank you. All right. So listen, I just wanted to point out, just as we get into this, sometimes government programs are aptly named. Right. So originally it was going to be the Department of Public Education, which spells out dope, quite accurate. And you are dealing with this hellacious invasion of uh, freedom of trade called Certificates of Necessity, which spells out con. So let's let's have some background on that and, and why you're doing what you're doing. Sure. And they are a con job. The Institute for Justice and several doctors have teamed up to file a lawsuit challenging the con program or the Certificate of Need program here in Virginia. It's based on the simple premise that patients and doctors and not the government are in the best position to decide what medical services and equipment are needed in a community. And here in Virginia, in 36 other states, you require government permission. You, it is illegal for a doctor to open an office uh, of certain types, even to buy certain types of medical equipment without special permission from the government, state government, that is. Right. And of course, the need in the free market sense is people are willing to pay for the service. I think, as you've rightly pointed out, I mean, if people are going to come to my clinic and they're going to want this scan or they want this MRI or whatever, then that's an indication of need. But of course, government bureaucrats have an entirely different definition of need. I wonder if you can talk about their reasoning behind that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when private citizens want to invest in innovative or uh, quality healthcare services, the last thing the government should be doing is stopping them. What the government is interested in doing is in protecting the services that are available in the community. So this is just pure protectionist legislation that is, in effect, a government permission slip to compete with uh, existing healthcare providers in the community. It protects the large hospitals and incumbent providers against those people who would like to start up new medical facilities or purchase new equipment and improve the services in the community. Now, if I understand this correctly, this came out of the 60s when governments wanted to limit health care costs. This, of course, is not a new debate in any um, Western society. Governments wanted to control health care costs, and so when hospitals that were funded by the state wanted to get uh, to invest in expansion or new equipment, they had to show that it was necessary because they were concerned about wastage. And that's sort of where it began. How did earth did it end up in this particular situation? Right. So, so to give some of that background, you're exactly right. It started out in the 60s and 70s. At one point, the federal government promoted states adopting uh, con programs and the certificate of need programs. And they did that because Medicare provided reimbursements to hospitals on a cost-plus basis. So whatever the cost of the service was, plus some profit of margin, the federal government would pay for those services under the Medicaid program. That encourages uh, the use of new equipment or more expensive equipment because whatever the hospital would spend on the equipment or the services, they would be paid for. And so there was this need or this uh, perceived need or attempt by the federal government to limit their costs through the Medicare program. And so they pushed this legislation onto the states and encouraged them to adopt these certificate of need programs to reduce the number of new hospitals, to reduce uh, expanded services, to limit the amount of innovative technical, technological equipment used in medical facilities. Ultimately, the federal government looked at this and realized that it was not working, that it was basically anti-competitive and protectionist and reducing the quality of medical services. It withdrew its support. Uh, there was an FTC project or a program in the uh, 2004 that produced a report showing that these laws are just wholly protectionist and anti-competitive. So the federal government would do their support, but lobbying in the states kept them going. So in 36 states, there continue these projects or uh, these con programs, certificate of need programs, so that it's illegal to open mm -hmm. certain kinds of medical facilities, to have certain types of equipment, including, as you say, MRI machines, without special government permission. 
And the protectionist angle and the lobbying that keeps those protections in place for incumbent providers is what is driving these things to uh, to continue. Some states, including Virginia, uh, really get into even the most minute purchases of relatively inequipment medical equipment, uh, relatively inexpensive purchases of medical equipment. So an MRI machine, for instance, you just can't put one in a medical facility in Virginia without special permission. Right. So if, if I'm in Virginia and I want to, I'm a doctor, I want to open a private clinic, which throughout most of the civilized world you can do. I think you, you can probably even do it in Syria. But throughout most of the civilized world, you just you hang out your shingle and you wait for your customers. But you have to apply for special permission. You have to go through, I think you said a multi-year, multi-hundred thousand dollar and, and with no guarantee that it will be approved. I mean, it truly is Orwellian. I mean, it is, you go through all of this and you don't, there are no objective standards by which you know whether you're going to get approval or not. Is that right? It's, it's ambiguous, it's expensive, it's time-consuming. And what's remarkable and what demonstrates the protectionist side of this is that the state of Virginia and in the 36 other states that have these laws, the state doesn't care that you're providing these services. Uh, in other words, we have Virginia-licensed radiologists providing MRI services in the facilities that would like to open. The problem is the state doesn't want you working for yourselves, uh, working for themselves and competing against existing facilities. So if they were to work for a hospital to provide these very same services, it would be lawful. If they want to hang out their own shingle, open a competing service, it's unlawful. And it could take years to get through the process. Uh, Dr. Baumel, one of our clients in this case, spent nearly five years and $175,000 trying to get a license and was denied. And this is one of the things that drives him to sue the state. And, of course, this creates entrenched special interest rent seekers who gain this monopoly or quasi-monopoly benefit. And it also drives down the wages of doctors there because if you can't, if you have to go and work for someone, then there's an excess of people applying for those jobs, which is going to drive down the wages. So do you think that there's been any flight of medical expertise uh, from Virginia or from the states that have these kinds of draconian measures in place? Well, if you're in... If you're in the state and you're practicing, you may very well be protected by these laws. The problem is the interstate commerce problem. The problem is the doctors who are out of state. So, for instance, uh, one of our clients has successful radiology facilities in Delaware, is expanding into New Jersey, would like to bring services to Virginia and expand the options for patients here, but can't. So it's not a matter of flight, but good doctors who have innovative treatments are kept out of the state by these laws. Right. And I would imagine that people uh, who know about these laws, it may, they may choose where they go to practice uh, based upon these. Uh, although, as you say, it's, it's 36 states that have these kinds of laws. What kind of lobbying efforts are being put into place by the people who are currently, and I would completely argue, morally unjustly benefiting from these regulations? What kind of lobbying efforts are they putting in to fight this uh, and any kind of liberalization of this market? Well, there are certainly lobbyists at the state level, but more typically where you see the action by the incumbents who are protected by these laws are at the local level. So if one is trying to, say, open a radiology facility, put an MRI machine into a community in northern Virginia, you apply to the state for your license to get that. As part of that process, the incumbent providers are actually invited into the process to opine on whether or not a new competitor will hurt their business. And it it comes down to, in essence, full-blown litigation over this question. And so the lobbying really comes down to them getting consultants and lawyers and reports to demonstrate that uh, they cannot have a competitor in their region, and by that means they can keep the competitor out and they can keep their market protected. 
these con programs are, are really government permission slips to the new doctors to compete, but they amount to certificates of monopoly for favored established businesses who have those resources who can put the consultants and the lawyers to work at the local level and demonstrate that competition would hurt their market share. Right, right. So I can't imagine this is the first time this has been challenged. Uh, what's going on with other states and what is the legal precedent that you're hoping will uh, ratchet this uh, to, to, the, to the just side of the fence? Well, our, our lawsuit is, has, has several sides to it. First, it's, it, these laws abridge the doctors that we represent, their right to earn an honest living, to open their own shingle, to have their own independent practice. That's a violation of the United States Constitution. We hope to establish that precedent, that they have a right to earn the honest living, to provide their services where there are willing patients who uh, would like and uh, can access their, their services. Secondly, there's an interstate commerce clause problem. Uh, the United States Constitution interstate commerce clause creates a national market for healthcare services. It creates a free market across the entire nation. States are not allowed to erect uh, barriers to that market to protect local interests at the expense of, at the expense of the interstate market, and that's exactly what happens here. You have doctors who are successful out of state who would like to enter our state to provide services. You have medical equipment manufacturers who would like to sell into the state and provide. Uh, innovative technology for medical services, they're prevented from doing so. We'd like to get a precedent to demonstrate that these con laws uh, in Virginia and perhaps in other states violate the Commerce Clause protections of the United States Constitution and abridge the right to earn an honest living of these doctors who would like to provide services to willing patients. Yeah, healthcare is one of these funny things, of course, because when you're healthy, you really don't care about healthcare that much. And when you're sick, you only just care about getting better and you don't have a, a lot of stomach for a, for a big fight. And that's one of the things, the reasons why expansions of state power into healthcare happens uh, so frequently. Now, do you have any numbers or comparisons between states that don't have these kinds of restrictions and states that do? Uh, have you got any quantifiable numbers about any difference in, in patient cost or, or care or availability? Well, one thing that's clear is that uh, the in the states that have the con laws, the uh, uh, executives of the established hospitals earn substantially more. So one study shows that the uh, executives of the uh, established incumbent providers in con law states are able to extract roughly $90,000 additional uh, wages and additional salaries compared to executives in non-con states, uh, non-certificate need program states. So it demonstrates that there are, as you said earlier, these rents that you can extract from uh, the laws, that uh, wages go up for the incumbent providers by protecting and keeping out the upstarts and the innovative people who might come into their markets. And there, there can't be, I mean, the moment you get these kinds of uh, aggressive incursions into free, the free market, you end up with an imbalance uh, of, of resources and requirements. So for sure, there's not going to, it seemed to me inevitable that there would not be enough equipment, there would not be enough service provider, because anytime there's a barrier to entry, uh, you end up creating shortages. Uh, and, and I think that's really, it comes down to what, the, what is the patient uh, available, what is available to the patient, and the basic right that you should have as a human being to be able to choose your healthcare provider. Uh, and uh, this violation is, is so fundamental, and until you get sick, it's really hard, I think, to understand just how fundamental a violation this is. Absolutely. The results are predictable. There's going to be fewer choices and higher prices for patients, bigger paychecks, maybe profits for established businesses. And I think one of our clients, uh, Colon Health Centers of America, demonstrates the lack of innovation. So what they provide is a virtual colonoscopy 
for people who might not get screened for colon cancer using traditional methods because it's uncomfortable. People have a lot of fear around it. Most All right, sorry. Uh, on the colon note, if you can hang on, we've got to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about outright theft or acid forfeiture uh, right after the break. Thanks, Larry. Nine out of ten historians agree. If Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine were alive today, both would be Shift Radio premium members. Somewhere up there, Thomas Jefferson is looking down with great pride. Shift Radio continues right now. All right, we are back on the line with Larry Salzman. Uh, just to switch gears a little, Larry, you're also involved in uh, process of asset forfeiture. Asset forfeiture, for those who don't know, is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you are even suspected of having property that's been used in a crime, that property can be taken and sold and the profits go to the police. And uh, you are working with a couple whose uh, hotel or motel is uh, under this kind of process. Is that right? That's right, Stephen. The Institute for Justice uh, represents the Caswell family in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. And you have it right. Civil asset forfeiture laws allow the government, uh, both federal and state government, to take property uh, that was involved in a crime. And most people probably assume that that means it can take property that somehow uh, is the fruits of a crime or is involved in a crime by the wrongdoer. But what most people don't realize is you can lose your property without being convicted or even charged with the crime. And that's what's happening to the Caswells. And it's a fundamental violation of innocent until proven guilty because in order to recover your property, you have to engage in lengthy, expensive uh, legal action uh, at a time when your property has been taken and you're probably kind of broke as a result. That's true. The Caswells own a motel in Tewksbury. It's been in uh, Russell Caswell's family for more than 60 years. It was built by his father. They are totally innocent owners who've done everything reasonable and everything the government has ever asked, the local government has ever asked, particularly to keep crime away from their property over the years. And rather than uh, help the Caswells keep crime, this is a, a rough neighborhood, so rather than help the Caswells keep crime off of their property, they're really making them a scapegoat in the neighborhood and seeking to take their property. And this financial incentive, it's really a perverse financial incentive that the agency seizing the property will get to keep the money when the property is sold off. And it encourages an abuse of the kind you're seeing in the Caswell case. Yeah, like in this example, they could sell it the, the, the hotel for a million and a half, and they give up to 80% of that to the police department, whose budget is $5.5 It's a significant amount of money. And, of course, what, what's so horrifying about this is that uh, the Caswells have never been asked by the police to do more than they're doing. Like, as you've pointed out, they, they voluntarily installed security cameras. They photocopy customers' IDs. They record their license plates and turn that information over to the police. So they have been more than cooperative. They've gone above and beyond what is required, as far as I understand it. And yet they're still considered to be somehow responsible for 30 incidents, even if we assume that that's true, 30 inc incidents uh, since 1994, or as you point out, less than five one-hundredth of one percent of the 125,000 rooms that they've rented over 6,700 days. It just seems to me, I'm not sure how this would be distinguishable from uh, organized crime uh, coming to just take your stuff. Yeah, and what is, I mean, the point you make is really one of the outrageous points here for uh, you know, more than the 10 years that the federal suit, uh, it's the federal government that has launched the forfeiture action. Over the 10 years that they've identified in their complaint, roughly 10 crimes that occur to the property that uh, they claim subjected to forfeiture, the local police have always cooperated with the uh, Caswell family. So the Caswells have done all of those things that you indicated and more. They are often the ones that call the police when there is trouble at the motel. They don't want this 
uh, crime at their motel. Russ and his wife Patricia live right next door to the motel. This isn't uh, like some slum where somebody's an absentee owner. They live right next door with Pat's 91-year-old uh, mother with uh, their granddaughter, and they do everything possible to keep the crime off of this motel, have always cooperated with the police to do that. The first they heard about the seizure is after decades of cooperation in a difficult neighborhood with the police to keep crime off the property, the federal government serves them with papers telling them that they're going to lose the property through civil asset forfeiture. And how successful do uh, our police departments with this kind of action in the past, how successful have they been? Well, unfortunately, very successful. Civil asset forfeiture is a growing problem. This financial incentive was put into the law in 1994. Uh, federal law changed so that when the federal government and when they team up with local governments, they can share the funds with the local government. They get to keep the money that they see. That began in 1984. There was about $100 million in forfeitures that occurred that year. Last year, it was more than $1.5 billion. So it's a growth industry for the agencies that benefit from this. And it really is a win-lose. I mean, I remember hearing of a case where a guy had a private plane and flew passengers. It turns out that one of those passengers had hidden drugs. The man had no knowledge. His plane was seized. His entire livelihood was seized. And this creates a kind of paranoia and mistrust, of course, among citizens because you don't know what actions, even if you have no knowledge, are going to result in the destruction of your entire livelihood. Well, even if, as in the Kazlov case, you're entirely innocent. It does what you said earlier. It, it turns the principle, the American principle of innocent until proven guilty on its head, because you're for, once they suspect you of a crime and once there's some evidence that crimes occurred with your property, whether you were guilty of any wrongdoing or not, they take it first. And then it's up to you to come into court to sue them to get it back to prove that you were innocent. And so it, it certainly does raise a, a, a kind of fear among citizens who are in certain industries where their property might be used totally unbeknownst to their uh, unbeknownst to them for wrongful purposes by third parties. I never think this is just another example of how the drug war is leading to a pretty fascistic extrapolation of state power, because of course these are fundamentally crimes where the only complainant is the state. I mean, the people selling the drugs aren't complaining, the people buying the drugs aren't complaining, so there's this third party who comes in uh, with all of the weight and might of the uh, the state, uh, and this really, really disrupts. I mean, has there been no challenges to this kind of, it's such a violation of common law, of any Western legal tradition. Have there been no challenges mounted against this that have had any chance of success, or have challenges not even been mounted? No, there have been challenges in the past, and uh, really some of those challenges have whittled away at the government's power to do this to some degree. So, believe it or not, uh, civil asset forfeiture has been going on since the founding of the country, and as you say, the the drug war really heightened its use prohibition in the 30s heightened its use. But by the 1990s, there was so much abuse that it got to Congress, and they passed a reform law in 2000, which put an innocent owner defense into the statute. Prior to that, you couldn't even come into court and demonstrate your innocence and get your property back. So, Oh, so, so this is where we are now. Is actually thing, progress? This is, this is progress from the original law? Oh, that's astounding. This is progress in the original law, but what we need to demonstrate is that civil asset forfeiture has to go lock, stock, and barrel. It's simply wrong to treat innocent people as guilty and require them to demonstrate that it is innocence. It's one thing to take property incident to a crime if, if the wrongdoer benefited from the property or, or 
bought the property with the fruits of a crime. It's and there's, sorry to interrupt, but there's such a clear conflict of interest uh, that you would never be allowed to do this uh, in any other transaction. Listen, I'm sorry, we're out of time, but listen, I want to make sure that you get information out to the listeners. Uh, if anybody wants to help out, has expertise or donations that they want to put out, where can people go to get more information about what you're doing and help out if they want? I would encourage them to go to our website. It's www.ij.org. All right. Well, thanks, Larry, so much. really appreciate uh, the fight that you're doing. Uh, we will be back right after the break. We're going to take some calls. Feel free to call in and chat. You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next, boom, your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? The revolution starts now. Starts now. We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Turn those machines back on! You are about to enter the Peter Schiff Show. Show me the money! If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. The Peter Schiff Show is on. Call in now. 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money. Your stories. Your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. Hello, hello. It is time for us to wish a very happy birthday to the late Keynes, who really was the cocaine peddler of economics, because he was all about short-term quote solutions. He was actually once famously asked, what happens to your policies in the long run? And he said, in the long run, we're all dead. And now he is, thank heavens, dead, but his ideas live on. And it is taking quite a lot of free market stakes to be driven through the vampire heart of these absolutely terrible and destructive theories. And here to talk about them, we have Veronique de Rougy. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center and columnist for Reason Magazine. Uh, she got her PhD in economics from the University of Paris Sorbonne, and uh, she is a crackerjack of insight about the free market. Uh, welcome, Veronique. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, thanks. Okay, so the Keynesian multiplier. I will let you talk about that because when I talk about it, I end up having to wash my mouth out with soap. So uh, what do you got? Well, you're very nice to leave that from, to me. <laughs> Um, the Keynesian multiplier is this, um, this fiction by which uh, if the government invests $1 of your money on your behalf for its own goals, the economy will grow by more than $1. Um, obviously, we have multiple evidence that it's not the case, whether it's the Great Depression, this recent stimulus. Also, economists can't even agree on the value of that multiplier, like by you know this amount by which supposedly uh, this miracle happens. Um, and when you look at the economists who actually find a high value for this multiplier, you find out that the conditions um, that needs to be there are like nothing like what we have. You need to have very low level of spending. You need to have fixed interest rate, uh, fixed um, exchange rates. You need to have um, you know, uh, closed borders, uh, not have free trade. I mean, a lot of things which are just do not, do not even apply to us. And this all, it seems to me, goes back to the, the broken window fallacy, right? Which is the idea that yeah. if you go and spend a bunch of money, even if it's building stuff that doesn't need to be built, right? You go yeah. dig a hole and fill it back in. The government pays $100 million for that. And you get maybe $50 million in labor costs. Those labor costs then you know, spend money in stores and generate a lot of flurry of economic activity. And... I mean, you know, it's like that old joke about economists that the, the president of the United States says, I really, really need a one-armed economist. And somebody said, why? And he said, well, because I need an economist who's not going to say, on the other hand, 
Now, of course, on the other hand, this, uh, everybody looks at the money that is spent, but they don't look at the debt and the money that is removed from the private sector. Is it, is it that simple or am I missing something obvious? No, it's, it's, it's actually that simple. Um, I mean, the, the government doesn't produce anything. Um, I, mean, and it, I mean, I tend to think um, that it actually destroys things, but I mean, in the best case scenario, it doesn't produce anything. In order to spend money, the government needs to um, tax people, so that's just displacing um, um, money from one side of the economy to the, to the other, or it needs to borrow money, and at a certain level of debt, it totally displays private capital. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so much savings to go around, or it needs to print money, and we know, we know the effect of, uh, that inflation has um, on our economy. So, so, yes, it has a dramatic cost. I guess the most, um, maybe one of the uh, most interesting uh, argument of the Keynesian theory to debunk is those who says, well, okay, I mean, the multiplier is, is, is less than one. It's like, let's say the government spends $1 and, and uh, it will produce 50 cents of uh, economic growth. Um, and, and they say, see, that's 50, 50 cents. That would not have happened. <laughs> but the dollar happened, the minus dollar, and the plus 50 Otherwise, cents is still... And, and, and is, it, is math that hard to do for Keynesian economists? Do they not have fingers that they can count? I don't understand. Here's the thing. It's like there's this worshipping at the altar of consumption. There's this assumption that when people save money, it's actually just like it, you might as well put it under your pillow. It's not doing anything. Or that there's actually no value whatsoever in prudence. And people saying, you know what? I just don't think it's a it's wise to invest my money right now. I'm just gonna I'm gonna sit on it. It's because the, these guys they worship at the altar of consumption, and they well they worship at the altar of what they call aggregate demand. Demand is what is driving everything. It's like if consumers spend their money, if the government spends their money, then demand will go up, will will rise, and then firms will see that consumers are are, are out and buying stuff, and then and, and 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 firms will start start hiring, investing, building plants, and here you go, you've jump started the economy. It's measurable, right? But I mean, if if you put, your, I mean, if you save your money, you put your money in the bank. That's supposed to drive down interest rates, and that makes it cheaper for companies to invest in growth and and startups to occur. Even if you put your money under the mattress in a sort of fixed amount of money, you've just raised the value of everyone else's money. So you've even done the economy a benefit by putting it under your mattress. But do I they not understand capital investment and the need for interest rates to go down for companies to do that? I mean, I don't know whether they, I mean, I suspect they do understand, but they think it's not as important as, as uh, the, the, the value of increasing aggregate demand. The, the other thing is like, I, I really do think that there is a really kind of, um, there is a refusal to see any any positive um, uh, side to recessions, and I mean, and we know how bad recessions are, and how it's like it inflicts significant pain on 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 individuals, on on companies, on an economy. But but in a sense, this is the way a country, a, a society, a, a financial system kind of purges itself from the excess of the past. Yeah, I mean, if, if I'm 300 pounds, I don't think it's a really good argument to say I don't want to diet because dieting is uncomfortable. I mean, if, you still need to diet because you need some weight. It's not good for you, right? 
yeah, you may die, but this is, you know, as as Keynes himself had said, you know, tomorrow we'll all be dead, so we might as well pig out now, I guess. So Romney said, um, you know, I hesitate to go to the Republicans even for good uh, for oh, a good understanding of free market economics. But Romney recently said, if you take a trillion dollars, for instance, out of the first year of the federal budget, that would shrink GDP over 5%. That is, by definition, throwing us into recession or depression. So I'm not going to do that, of course. What uh, is this idea that if you cut government spending, you are shrinking the economy? I mean, that's like saying, if I stop going into debt, uh, I am making my finances worse. Well, I mean, it's... I think, I mean, there is some truth to the fact that the moment the government will stop spending money, uh, I mean, the, some people will, some people whose entire business model rely on getting money from the government. I'm thinking about all the defense contractor uh, around, you know, in the Virginia area uh, where I live. It's, it's pretty stunning. I mean, they'll, they, they'll, they'll go, th- go through some serious pain and ache, and, and, and many of them will actually disappear. But there's a total utter confusion between the value created by this time of produ- this type of, of production versus what actually happens when you actually let people spend their own money, when you actually let people invest where they think it's the most productive rather than the government deciding, hey, here is a winner. I'm going to spend all my money on all the government's money, oh, some of the government money on, on this. And it just, and it's also, I mean, all these models that actually predict this, this gigantic reduction, I mean, in, in, in economic growth, they're all based on Keynesian assumptions, which is fundamentally that if you invest, 30. GDP will grow. If government invests money, um, GDP will grow. And hence, the reverse is true. In these models, if you take money away, the government will shrink. I, I just, I wish, you know, Republicans would kind of, you know, just not use this language. Well, I think uh, I think that's very true. Uh, now, I, if you can hold on past the break, we have uh, there's a number that blew my mind, and every time I talk to you or read one of your articles, my mind gets regularly blown. But this one came right out of my right ear and hit the wall, and it's the dollar amount. We'll talk about this after the break. It's the dollar amount that each one of the stimulus jobs cost. And it is truly an astounding figure. We will be right back with the great Veronique de Rougie. You're now enrolling in the Peter Schiff School of Advanced Economics. Twice the education of a Harvard MBA. For one 168,000th the cost. All right, we are back with Veronique de Rougie. Okay, so there was this stimulus package, and it always just struck me how government programs, they produce metaphors. <laughs> Nobody ever really looks at what they produce, uh, with some exceptions, but, um, you know, oh, we're, we're in a depression, let's have stimulus. It's like, you're down, here, have a coffee. And um, there, there was, of course, when government spends a bunch of money, when it borrows and spends a bunch of money, then people get hired. Absolutely, no question at all. And when I go on a spending spree and run up my credit card, uh, I buy a lot of stuff, and then I have to contract my spending to a, a greater degree later because I have to pay for the principal plus the interest of the money that I've borrowed. So it always has seemed to me that you know, Keynesianism is about bleeding the, uh, the future to bribe the present. But let's talk about the jobs that were created by this, quote, stimulus. Give me the number. Oh, it's a mind-blowing number. Well, How I much mean, did they cost? Well, so... I think kind of the average number is, is uh, $286,000 per job created. But is that the number you're thinking about? 
I got something here, which I got uh, somewhere a little north of $4 million a piece. This is according oh, to well, the Congressional so Budget Office. Yeah, so, yeah, so well, it, it, depends, it depends on which program you look at. So if you, if you look at the, um, a lot of the green energy jobs, when you look at the ratio uh, of job created versus, uh, versus money spent, you get, you get big, big, big numbers. But I think also lost in this whole debate is the fact that we call them job created or save. And what really it means is, one, these are jobs for the most part that were not created by, you know, by hiring people who were on the unemployment, in the unemployment lines, right? I mean, they were, uh, because that's the uh, Keynesian theory, is that the government will be spending money to put people back to work. Uh, my colleague, Gary Jones, has actually shown that roughly half of the stimulus money that actually produced loosely, I mean, used, I, used, I, I very loosely used the, the word produced um, uh, jobs were, were basically jobs where the, the company poached um, workers from existing jobs. The other thing is like, uh, because the standard for uh, the guidelines for jobs uh, created with stimulus money were very, very loose, it allowed for um, pay increases, for instance, and, and bonuses. So I think, you know, all of these numbers are, I mean, no matter as, how scary they are, I mean, they, they're even, it's even worse when you think of the fact that these, you know, for most of these uh, jobs. I mean, these these guys were employed. So basically, you you basically saved a private entre- uh, businessman from actually using his own money to pay his workers, and instead asked taxpayers to pay for for these. Uh, wretched. Now to shift gears a little bit, we've. It seems to me that there's a sort of looming. We always talk about class wars and so on, but it seems to me that there's kind of a looming intergenerational conflict that's coming up as we get, what, 10,000 boomers a day retiring just in the United States. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what's happening between the old and the young demographically, and in particular through income redistribution at the moment. Well, so what's happening is, I've I've said that I have actually uh, thought a better cause for Occupy Wall Street is that they should be occupying AARP. (laughs) Because <laughs> right now, 37 per- 37% of our budget is spent on seniors, and that's through pro- two programs, Social Security and uh, Medicare. And um, under the best economic situation and projection, by uh, 2030 or 33, uh, 50, uh, actually by 2030, of our budget will be spent on seniors. That's in the best case scenario. And because of the way these programs are funded, basically what you have is a gigantic transfer of wealth from the young, relatively young people in society and relatively poor, because when you're at the beginning of your life, you have lots of debts and you don't make that much money. And they transfer money from this category of, of Americans to the relatively old and relatively uh, wealthy member of society. So it's a total scam. Yeah, and it, it is I mean, because a lot of people don't really understand that there's no money in the social security, but there's, there's IOUs, there's no money. Money spent long ago. And people say, well, I've paid into it. But 
I don't really understand what that means because, like, just because I put money on a roulette wheel doesn't mean that I des deserve the winnings. If I lose my money, if the government spends my money, and it's been evident for many years that the government has blown all this money, then you gave your money to an untrustworthy entity and they blew your money. And that's terrible, but it's not the fault of the young. No, and we have uh, uh, Reagan and Greenspan to thank for this because the creation of their trust fund, right, dates to uh, 1983. And um, the, the idea was to collect more payroll taxes uh, in each given year and, and channel it through these trust funds, which by law have to invest that extra payroll tax into, uh, into treasuries. So that basically, by design, the federal government is spending this extra taxes. So it means that for the last two years where we've entered a permanent cash flow deficit, not only are young people, uh, younger people or like active working workers in America paying payroll taxes today to pay for benefits today. But on top of that, the, the government, in order to uh, complete, to, to pay all the benefits, has to borrow money with all the implication that you and I have talked about um, earlier on. Right, right. Now, it seems to me that this would have something to do with what's going on over in Europe, which has an even more catastrophic demographic than North America, the very low birth rate, particularly in the Mediterranean countries. Is, does this have something to do with what's going on over in Europe? Are investors looking at the European situation and saying, well, this is ridiculously unsustainable? Well, I mean, be, beyond what investors are, are, are doing, uh, I mean, this, this, the system in Europe and in America is completely unsustainable. I mean, your Europeans are like, I mean, it's, it's ridiculously more unsustainable because, I mean, they have things like, I mean, in Greece, you can retire at 50 with really lavish pensions. Um, and even in France, when, you know, they reduce the, uh, the, the retirement age to 60, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts. And public, uh, public workers, they, they retire at 50, 55. At worst, so and and their pensions are are like quite so. I mean, their their system is like way worse than ours. So, but and 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 in and of itself, it is unsustainable. But yeah, investors are like, huh, um, yeah, no, we're not going to lend you more money, or we're going to lend it to you at a very high rate because, from what we see, you know, there's not enough economic growth to pay to be paid back. No, the fantasy that they can grow their way out of these deficits is lunatic. And anybody who decides to tie their economic future to Greece and, and to Spain, Greece in 1908 was already kicked out of a, a monetary union. Spain's had economic troubles ever since 1492. It's like trying to do uh, a, a slow waltz with a malfunctioning robot being hit by a taser while uh, on the last uh, sleeping deck of the Titanic when a meteor hits the top. I mean, it's just it's a crazy situation. And uh, Germany and all of the other countries who tied themselves to these spendthrift lunatics are now paying the price. Yes, I mean, but we're in a government. I mean, it, it, it produces this fiction, this fiction that you can actually borrow and borrow and borrow um, and spend way more than you can collect in taxes and, and never pay any price for it, that you can actually uh, give uh, a right to a, a life. I, I was on C-SPAN on Sunday and a call, a, a, one of the caller uh, called and he was like, he was like, well, we deserve a life after you know, after work, basically, he wanted to retire at 50. And I was like, dude, all the more power to you. 
Yeah, save. Save for it. <laughs> You're right. No, I mean, at a time when, when lifespan is increasing to lower the retirement age. Oh, anyway. I mean, it's all yeah. completely mental. So, Listen, I'm so sorry. We, we do have to break for a commercial. Um, just give us a website or contact information. I highly recommend. You've got great articles. You're a great speaker. And if people want to contact you or read your stuff, where can they go? So um, my stuff is on mercatus.org um, website. And you can follow me on Twitter at 10. Which is V E R O N. Um, hold on. V E R O. Five. Four. I'm going to give it to after the break. Uh, just uh, email it to me. Thanks a lot, Veronique. Always a pleasure, and talk to you soon. All right. We are going to have a Peter Schiff show exclusive, a surprise guest interview. Uh, we're just uh, attempting to get him on the line. I uh, just wanted to mention, uh, sorry, we had to cut off uh, Veronique. You can Twitter handle her at V-E-R-O-D-E-R-U-G-Y. It's tough. You know, it's a French name. So uh, I know that uh, people have some exciting times <laughs> trying to Got pronounce him. my name. So we have uh, a special surprise guest interview. Quite excited. Brian uh, Seaman uh, from a super PAC in Florida. Brian, are you with us? I sure am. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's my pleasure, my pleasure. So uh, I will let you tell the dastardly tale of what is happening with the Republican National Committee Festival. Okay, let me start from the beginning. We are trying to organize a festival down in Tampa, Florida for the 24th, 25th, and 26th called Paul Festival. And this will take place um, days before the RNC is scheduled to start. And so what happens is that the Republican National Committee they have gone out, and two years prior to having this convention here, they already knew they were going to have it in Tampa. Uh, they went out and secured all the major venues in the area, and it's it's actually a common practice um, with these big political parties. I'm not sure if most people know that or not, but what they do is they sign contracts with all the big venues, and the the concept there is to you know allow them choices of the venues they want for events that they need, and of course um, give them the option of approving or not approving events they don't think they want around um, their convention at the time. So back in February, we started the process of securing the Florida State Fairgrounds for our event. And what the uh, Florida State Fairgrounds told us to do was to go to a website that the RNC has up, and we put in an application for approval. We did that uh, right about uh, the end of February, beginning of March, we put that in. Come May, the RNC told the uh, fairgrounds that they can start negotiating with us. And the fairgrounds did start that negotiations with us so we could have the event. Um, on June 1st, there was supposed to be an announcement of releases of events. And come June 1st, our event has not been released. We still have not been approved to um, use the fairgrounds um, mm. from the RNC. And, and this is not because the RNC has some other use that they have planned for it. Is that right? Because I mean, they have first dibs, right? They sort of staked the claim, so to speak. They got first dibs, but they said to you, we're not going to use it. Go ahead. And now they're not releasing it. Is that right? That's correct. That's exactly what's happening. And and from our do they think that you're Democrats? Uh, w w w the same team. I mean, what's tell me what the reason? I mean, do they just consider Ron Paul to be the crazy uncle with his conspiracy theories and and the Fed and gold standards that they just don't want him at the table? Or what do you think's going on? You know, I think that has to be the case because when you look at uh, around the country and what the uh, the GOP has done to Ron Paul and his supporters, you know, up in Maine and in other states, as far as uh, not counting votes, as far as trying to change the rules um, in the middle of a uh, convention to select delegates, uh, when you look at it that from that point of view, I think it's no doubt that the uh, the, G the uh, GOP does not want Ron Paul and his supporters part of this. 
which strikes all of us as odd. Um, from my point of view, I've been a registered Republican for 16 years now. So they're kind of, you know, I voted, and I, I hate to say this, but I voted for, uh, you know, George Bush back in the first election. <gasps> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I learned I since then. Standing but... indoors so the righteous lightning libertarian thunder gods don't send a bolt through your head. So good, just stay in, don't touch any water. <laughs> but sorry, go on. Exactly. But the point is, you know, almost everybody on our um, organizational team is Republicans as well and have been for a very long time. And so, yeah, this is a Republican event. It's not just Ron Paul um, who's invited. Obviously, we're going to invite Rand Paul. There's going to be some other um, congressmen and other Republicans out there that are on our list to extend invitations to once we, you know, have the venue secured. So from our point of view, it does seem like we're not being approved because this is a Ron Paul event. They did already approve an, um, a location for Sarah Palin's event, whatever she's putting on. Uh, I haven't looked into the details, but obviously they released uh, an event for her, a location for her. So this is obviously some um, picking and choosing. The RNC itself and, and the, uh, um, the organization that handles this, which is called the Committee on Arrangements with the RNC, they're very vague. They're very one-worded answers, and what we get from them is we have un hundreds of applications to go through. We'll get to yours when we can. And then <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, because they want a farmer's market there, and how on earth would they be able to differentiate that between Ron Paul? Also, feel free to give me a call. I do a mean ver live version of Baby Gut, but I don't know if that's going to fit your, your venue. But um, uh, So l I'm going to try and sort of get into the Republicans' head. Uh, and this is not something I like to do on a regular basis because it does involve a fair amount of uh, sand scrubbing and detox afterwards. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> but my guess would be, and tell me if this fits with your thinking, my guess would be that they don't consider there to be a lot of bleed over. Right, so you know what happens in, in all of these campaigns is that you know they're all jockeying for the front position and they all put each other down. Right, And then the moment that somebody becomes like a clear contender like Mitt Romney is now, everyone's like, Love that guy. He's the best guy ever. I can't believe there were people who ever spoke wrongly of him. I had a personality disorder. I have an evil twin who speaks badly of this guy. But I don't think that there's going to be that same switch from the Ron Paul supporters. Like the Ron Paul supporters in general, and you know, you know this much better than I do, but my impression is the Ron Paul supporters aren't going to go, oh, Ron Paul isn't in? Okay, I'll go with Mitt, I'll go with Mitt Romney. So I don't think that they feel that there is a bleed-over effect, in, in which case there may, it may not be as valuable to them. It may even be a negative uh, compared to other things that they could throw in there. Does that make any sense to you? It does, but you know, I would I would think that they would have the feeling also that they can't that Mitt Romney can't win without the Ron Paul supporters either. So to to take on the assumption that there's going to be no bleed over or that we won't support Romney, it, it might be a good assumption. I can't speak for everybody in the movement. But I do you think? Speak. Sorry, do do you think that Ron that that Romney can get Ron Paul supporters, given that he's dedicated to socialized medicine at least from his home state? Uh, he's dedicated to to increasing. The, the military spend uh, and, and his bellicose towards other nations. Do you think that he would have to make so many compromises to get the Ron Paul supporters that he would just alienate other less uh, consistent, let's say, base uh, within his uh, party? For, you know, once again, not speaking for everybody else out there that's a Ron Paul supporter, I'm not sure how to answer that question, and I hate to speculate. I do know that if you, you know, I do believe that if you're a political party and, you know, they really think that they want um, Romney to win and, and beat out Obama, if, you know, if the theory is, you know, a Republican office is better than uh, a Democrat and Obama in office, then it seems to me they shouldn't speculate or make these assumptions. They should reach out to us and work with us, that they should come and say, hey, how do we make sure that you help us beat Obama in the general election? And they're not doing that. What they're doing is exactly what you said. Well, we don't believe there's going to be any bleed over. We think you uh, Ron Paul supporters are going to go away if Romney gets the nomination, so we don't want you anyway. 
And that's but wouldn't, wouldn't they follow, sorry, interrupt, wouldn't they follow Ron Paul's lead on that? Do you think that he will um, uh, endorse any other candidates? You know, I think they should follow Ron Paul's lead on a lot of stuff that they don't seem to follow his lead on, like, you know, auditing the Federal Reserve and sound money, things like that. But um, he has endorsed other Republican candidates. And, of course, some of them have won their primaries in those states where he's endorsed them. And, you know, Ron Paul has also raised money in um, state Republican parties for the uh, the party itself. So it's not like Ron Paul is out there trying to actively destroy the Republican Party, uh, and neither are his uh, supporters. We're out there trying to obviously change the Republican Party, bring it back to what its platform used to be, which was less government. Uh, so, you know, I think, and Ron Paul's, of course, objective is to get people involved in the process. You can't affect change without being involved. And, I, you know, you would think that the RNC would take some recognition to that and understand what we're doing. Is there an element of... I mean, I hate to use the word censorship because that is a very powerful word, and I wouldn't want it confused with, you know, legal incursions against freedom of speech. But they, there is a definite element of squelching, uh, an element of its own party. This is not a competing party. This is not a neutral party. This is all under the same big tent. And they are basically not allowing a very successful, legitimate Republican candidate to hold a venue at the Republican National Convention. Is this not just frankly scandalous? I believe it is. I, I truly do. And, you know, with, if, if, if we reverse this and, or uh, rewind and go back to when George Bush was running, if he were able to bring in as many Democrats and as many independents over to the Republican Party as Ron Paul has, they would embrace him with open arms. But for some reason, because it's Ron Paul doing it and he's getting all these people to come in and become Republicans, they seem to reject it. And it's kind of the antithesis of what you would think a party would want. I mean, you'd think that they would want to take um, voters away from the Democrats. Uh, and aren't, uh, sorry, aren't Republicans continually and constantly complaining about bias in the liberal media and the fact that they don't get venues, that they don't get the opportunity to, to speak their plans, their, their calls to action, their platform. And now, isn't it, aren't they doing exactly what they criticize the mainstream media for doing, which is to squelch and ignore in a very underhanded manner uh, a legitimate expression of a political philosophy that, they, that, that is part of their political platform and part of their party? I, I think that's exactly what they're doing, and what's, what the problem is, is I don't think many of us completely understand why, and when I say many of us, I, I think the people inside the Ron Paul movement really do understand it. I think it's the, the Republican voters out there who just vote Republican because they've done it all their life, and they don't care who's on the ballot. They just believe it's better than a Democrat. So I think there's, there's now two factions of the Republican Party, those who are in the know and those who don't know. They just kind of blindly follow the Republican Party and its leadership. And I think the Republican Party is leaning on the blind followers and rejecting the those that are in the know. And I don't know why that because we're in the know, we scare them. I think that that would be helpful to them. And, you know, we are obviously building a coalition here of very strong, active political people. And you would think a party like the uh, Republican Party would want that, especially if they really feel like they are competing with the Democrats. Well, that's uh, assuming that they're interested in principles, not power. I would agree with you. I mean, it, it, that yeah. sort of popped into my mind. This would be a perfect Daily Show bit, right? You know, yeah. you call up the Republican convention. We want to use your fairground. Okay, are you Republicans? Yes. Are you consistent with our philosophy? Yes. Then no. <laughs> yes, if you're Republicans. No, if you're actually consistent with our political philosophy of smaller government. Then we can't conceivably allow that. 
Uh, and, and of course, this doesn't help uh, break the stereotype that Republicans are old white guys who are scared of the young, particularly people who might have differently colored hairstyles. Thank you so much. You can go to paulfestival.org for more on this. Try and put the pressure on. And we will be back very shortly. If knowledge is power, then the Peter Schiff Show is a uranium-enriched 10,000-megawatt nuclear reactor. Stay plugged in. Stay brilliant. This is the Peter Schiff Show. All right, all right, everybody. How are you, how are you doing? I hope you're doing well. We are cruising into the final segment. Please feel free to call into the show. Uh, I'm happy to take a caller before we end up. I wanted to talk a little bit. I was hoping to get into this a bit more with Veronique, but we got a little sidetracked, as I so often am, by shiny things and uh, the lint between my toes. But Europe uh, is, I think, of course, where a lot of people's financial attention is focused at the moment, and rightly so. And there is, of course, a panic. Uh, and, and in broad terms, right, and I really think that the, the high view, the, the view from orbit is really, really important because when you're really up close to things, you can't see. I, the, the detail of economics is like pointillism. If you're up close, it just looks like a bunch of dots. You've got to move back to see the bigger shape. And, you know, of course, what happened in Europe for the most part was you had really spendthrift economies and you have relatively better economies. So Germany is still riding the wave of free market reforms that occur right. after the second um, the second world war and one of the reasons that germany is skeptical about bailing out greece is to remember 23 years ago germany poured two trillion dollars or more into uh, eastern germany right after the fall of the soviet empire and what did they get a little benefit here and there and a massive debt and so this is what voters are working with in germany they saw pouring all of this money into east germany to almost no benefit. And then, <laughs> they're already jealous of the Greeks for their climate. Are they really going to send them a whole lot of productivity as well? All right, we've got a caller back from New Jersey. What is your question, my Hi, friend? Hi, uh, how are you? It's a pleasure to be on the air with you. Go ahead. Um, I wanted to ask you, what, what exactly, um, somebody could explain to me, the libertarian position on the RICO statues. As we all know, the RICO statues were designed to go after the heads of the families of La Costa Nostra, to take out the, the heads of the families that gave orders to people to kill people. Uh, is it the libertarian position that that is necessarily unconstitutional, that you can't hold somebody responsible for giving orders to kill somebody? You can only hold that individual responsible for killing somebody. Is it a violation of the First Amendment, or is it, is it unconstitutional on, on other grounds? What is the libertarian, or more specifically, what is your take on Yeah, yeah, me, me I, I, you know, I try not to speak. Uh, I, I, I often don't even speak for myself, so I don't want to speak for others. Okay, so look, the, the, the question is, those who give orders versus those who execute. Well, the first place that I go in my mind is to the Nuremberg trials uh, after the Second World War. Uh, of course, as you know, the Nuremberg trials were the trials of the Nazi leaders uh, after the end of the Second World War. And during the Nuremberg trials, the precedent was put forward very clearly and very repetitively that being on the receiving end of the orders was not a moral crime, but giving the orders was the moral crime. And it was the leaders who were criminalized, not the soldiers. Now, I understand it's a little bit different when you're in war versus just being in, um, uh, in peacetime, but the idea that whoever starts the ball rolling uh, is the most um, morally responsible for it. So, for instance, if, if I pay someone to go kill someone, well, I'm actually causal in that. I'm only 
speaking morally, I'm not speaking sort of legally, that's out of my sphere of expertise, but if I pay someone 10,000 bucks to go hit and to go whack someone, I don't know if that's how much it costs, but let's say, then I'm actually causing that death because that death would not have occurred if I did not uh, give that person $10,000. Now, yeah, the person who kills, they're, you know, they're, they're the killer and they're morally responsible too, but I'm actually the causal agent in that. And there's an interesting thing that happens in, in the law. So uh, a guy, this is actually a legal case in the U.S., a guy went to rob a convenience store and the, um, the cashier uh, shot at him uh, to, to prevent him from stealing and the bullet ricocheted and killed another customer in the store. And it was the robber who was charged with murder, although the robber did not pull the trigger, because the robber set in events, set into motion the events which resulted in the death. So uh, I think, of course, that if you if you order a hit and and you pay the person to do the hit and you know that person is going to, then it is your words that cause that. Now that, of course, is vastly changed when you look at the uh, use of torture. Uh, that was authorized by high levels of the U.S. government. Then, of course, now that they were in power and not prosecuting the Nazis, they went after the people at the bottom rather than give the causal responsibility to the people at the top. So um, that would be, of course, but of course you wouldn't need any of this stuff if you didn't have a war on drugs, if you didn't have a war on prostitution and gambling and all of these other things which are consensual, if sometimes distasteful, uh, you wouldn't need any of this stuff. Uh, if So, you know, it's just another example of one government program called the War Against Drugs leading to another government program called RICO. Does that make any sense? Uh, it does make any sense. Uh, the only question I would ask is that uh, in the Nuremberg trials, I would assume that the reason that we were going after the leaders and not actually the people carrying out the, the deeds is because, you know, as soldiers who thought that they were legitimately following uh, the rules of the, of the state, that the military leaders were supposed to be uh, run by civilian leadership, as most uh, people are, as most governments are, where the, the, the civilian leadership, uh, in that case it was Adolf Hitler, ran the military, and they thought that they were doing the service of that country, whereas as opposed to the RICO statues, we were dealing with uh, La Costa Nostra. And yeah, sorry, no, and I, I agree with you, which is why they didn't prosecute the, the foot soldiers of the Nazis, but you would prosecute a foot soldier of the Costa Nostra, right? So, yeah, I agree with you there's a difference, but the point I was trying to make is that it's the leadership that instigate the immorality that is considered to be, um, uh, that is considered to be uh, morally at fault. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you, you go after them both. Uh, I think morally that would be the, the right thing to do. So, sorry, we've got to move on. We've got another qu- a caller from, from Jacob. Uh, are, you, are you on the line? Uh, yes. Hit me. Right here. Uh, sorry, oh. you, you had a question? Yes, uh, I like. Uh, wanted to ask uh, what you think about violent video games. Frankly, they're a lot of fun. Uh, I think they're a lot of. I mean, I'm I'm a very peaceful person. I've never been in a fist fight. I've never, you know, I barely ever yell at anyone. But um, I think that can be a lot of fun, and uh, I think that they can be a sort of fairly harmless release of uh, you know fun tensions and so on. Uh, I, I played uh, a game before I became a dad. Right when I actually had some time. I played a game called uh, Unreal Tournament, which was quite a lot of fun. I mean, it's, you know, you're shooting at robots with ridiculously uh, explosive weapons, so it's not particularly realistic. I think they're fine, but because we have the capacity to differentiate between fantasy and reality, and I don't think that there's much of a link between that. Uh, but I, I have heard studies, uh, I have not read them in any great detail, I'll just put that out there for people who want to take this further, that uh, it's not so great for kids. Um, because, of course, your brain is still developing, your moral sense, your empathy, and all of this is still developing, and children have less of a capacity to differentiate between reality and fantasy. I've heard studies that say that the link between violence uh, games and violent media for children and violence in children 
is about the same, if not more, than the link between smoking and lung cancer. So I think that it is an adult pleasure. Uh, I think that um, they are. They can be a little bit addictive. You have to watch your, your time sync with those things. And certainly for the young, they're playing like, what, 12, 13, 14 hours of video games a week. One minute. Uh, that's quite a lot. So, uh, you know, in moderation uh, with uh, good, good self-knowledge and not, I think, so appropriate for the children. Uh, that would be my particular approach. I hope that makes some kind of sense. So with that, and thank you so much for the callers. I'm sorry, sorry that we didn't have more time for callers. I love, love the callers, particularly on this show. You guys always have fantastic questions and, and insights and comments. So uh, I will actually be back, I think, on Thursday, and we will um, have a show more dedicated to your thoughts, your ideas, and my occasional brackets of hopefully somewhat utilitarian wisdom. But um, that's about it for us today. Thank you to the team for putting together such a great show. Thank you to the guests and thank you so much to the callers this is Stefan Molyneux for the Peter Schiff show I will see you in about 46 hours when the road of life is blaring